This morning we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll look at the entire chapter. Let me remind you of the context that we find ourselves in here in this part of the Old Testament. The nation of Israel has made a choice. They were facing a serious military threat, and they have demanded a king like the nations. Up until this point, they had not had an earthly king. God has been their king, but they have said that an earthly king would provide greater security and prosperity for the nation. And so the Lord has granted their request, and he has given them Saul. Now, Saul's career as king gets off to a good start. In chapter 11, he did lead them in victory against their neighboring enemies, the Ammonites, and a harsh ruler who was looking to oppress God's people. And so that's what we're coming out of here from 11 to 12 in 1 Samuel. But as chapter 11 closed, Samuel calls the nation together, and let me remind you of these verses and what he said. Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now here in chapter 12, we learn more of what was said there at Gilgal as the nation was gathered. Samuel is transitioning from being their judge and the prophet to God's people to just being the prophet. He will no longer be their ruler as judge. They will have a king. And so this, in chapter 12, is the address that he delivers to God's people on that occasion. Before we read God's word, let us go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Would you join me in prayer again? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Lord, we come seeking your counsel from your word today, that you might instruct us in your way, and help us by the work of your spirit that we would delight in your law, and that it would become our meditation both day and night. So would you work among us by your spirit, through your word today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you, our Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. We ask that you would open your word to us, that we might be built up in the faith, that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you 
and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness and who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, And the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashereth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall rule over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom we have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you should be swept away, both you and your king. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I didn't write that. 
That's from Bob Dylan's song, Gotta Serve Somebody, on one of his two gospel albums. The song appeared on the 1979 album, Slow Train Coming. And interestingly, it won the Grammy Award for the best rock vocal performance by a male in 1979. It's pretty ironic because there's nothing that is less rock and roll or anti-rock and roll than the message, you got to serve somebody. Because in all the history of rock and roll, it's the opposite message that we will not serve anyone. We will throw off all restraints. But here, the best rock song of 1979 is, you got to serve somebody. The Bible is filled with reminders and passages that call out to each of us that you must choose. You're going to serve somebody. And here in the opening lines of Dylan's song, it doesn't matter if you're the ambassador to England or France. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to have to serve somebody. And that was Samuel's message to the nation and to their new king. That even their king will have to serve somebody. And in this chapter, as Samuel is leaving behind his office as judge, he will remain their prophet, speaking the word of the Lord to them. He gives them this message, this call. He calls them to serve their Lord. I want us to consider chapter 12 under three sections this morning. The first 15 verses, I want us to think about the vindication of the judge's integrity. And then in their second section, a smaller section, just verses 16 and 17, I want us to look at the validation of the prophet's message. And then the closing of the chapter, in verses 18 through 25, we will consider the renewal of the covenant. The vindication of the judge's integrity, the validation of the prophet's message, the renewal of the covenant. The first 15 verses, the vindication of the judge's integrity. There is a transition before us, as we have said. Israel now has their king. Samuel was their judge. He was their last judge. Now, this is judge is different than judges today. This is a period in which God would raise up leaders who would be both civic and spiritual leaders over his people. And typically, they would be called upon and raised up to be deliverers when God's people were in crisis. And this is how Samuel has served the nation of Israel. But he will no longer because they have asked for a king. And he points out to them, he says in verse 2, basically, I've lived my whole life before you. Since I was young, my sons are now grown before you. He's pointing out how old he is. He's, he said, I've lived my whole life in the public eye. And he invites the nation to make an accusation against him. There, in verses 3 and 4, he says, Who can testify before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? He stands before them. He says, in my role in public office, I have not stolen from you or taken from anyone their means of financial gain. Ox and donkey, beast of burden, would have been what they would have needed 
to produce. It would have been what they would needed for their livelihood, for their work. And he says, I've, I've not taken anything from any of you and abused my office. I haven't taken what was so valuable in the ancient world, any of your ox or donkeys. And then what does he go on to say? Or whom have I defrauded? He says, if I have any wealth, if I have anything, I have not come by it illegally. I have not rigged the system in such a way to promote my own prosperity as the judge over Israel. No, I have not defrauded anyone. And he goes on to say, or whom have I oppressed? There in verse 3. There's no one in whom that he is treated harshly. He has not been one to leverage class wars among Israel between the poor, the middle class, and the rich. No. He has been a good and righteous ruler over God's people. And he stands before him and says, who could come before us and say that I've oppressed them? And no one is able to come forward. Then he also says, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. He's giving the image of saying, I'm standing in judgment. There's a case before me. And imagine someone coming and bringing money or gold or silver and me taking that and covering my eyes and being blind and perverting justice because I've been paid. He said, I've never done that. This is the type of ruler that I've been. And the people affirm it. There in verse 4, they say that this is true. You have not done this. He has not been a leader that would leverage his own leadership for his own prosperity. He could not be bought. He claims that he was a leader who operated with the utmost integrity in his service. And the people confirm it. He's a model for public office, a model of servant leadership. Think about how difficult it is to live in the public eye. At some point, all of our heroes, we find out something about them that's embarrassing, possibly unethical, something that we say, oh, I really like that they are committed to this, but then there's this part of their life. Samuels, there's no accusation at all. There's no hint of anything unjust or wicked in his ruling over God's people. Why does Samuel seek to vindicate his own integrity in this way as he is transitioning out of the office of judge? Well, it's not that he's a petty, bitter old man who is upset that they chose the young, tall, handsome Saul to replace him. No, at first, he was tempted to think so. In 1 Samuel 8, a couple chapters back, when they went and asked for a king, he was tempted to be offended by their request, that they had rejected his leadership. But what did the Lord tell him in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7? The Lord told Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What is he telling the people? He's telling them that in my rule over you, it was God's rule over you. And by God's grace, Samuel was a pure reflection of God's leadership over his people. So he's saying before them, 
Who here today can say that God defrauded them? Who here today can say that God is a God who takes a bribe? Who here today is a God who oppressed them? No, he calls them their king and the Lord to witness. And there in verse 6, he says, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron, brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Samuel is leaking his leadership to that of, of Moses and Aaron's in previous generations, saying that as Moses was God's leader of his people, I've been to you. And as Aaron was God's spokesman through Moses to God's people, I have been to you. And he said, through my leadership, the, the Lord has not unlawfully taken anything from any of you. He has not defrauded you. He has not unjustly oppressed you. He could not be bought. He could not be bribed. And then following in his his speech here at Gilgal, he picks up, and more explicitly, he then transitions from his leadership to how the Lord had ruled over Israel in the past, beginning in verse 7. He says, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. He's going to recount redemptive history. He lays out from when they were delivered from Egypt that when they were under the hand of Pharaoh that God raised up Moses and Aaron and delivered them. And he brought them out. But then in verse 9, what did the nation do? But they forgot the Lord their God. And so what did he do? And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar. And then later, when they forgot the Lord their God, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And then verse 10, and they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the ales the Baals and the Asherah, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. He reminds the people of their sin cycle that God would deliver them and then in a moment of prosperity they would forget the Lord and forsake the Lord. And so God would righteously send their enemies against them so that they would turn back to him and cry out. That even when God would send oppressors to rule over his people. It was just. It was righteous in the way that he treated them. And that's what makes verse 12 so striking. That when God had allowed Nahash, the Ammonites, their neighbors, to come against them, they did not cry out to the Lord. But they said, no, a king shall reign over us. And Samuel reminds them, you asked for this when the Lord was your king. Samuel is making it very clear that the great sin of asking for a king is the way in which they asked. That they were saying, we will not serve the Lord, we will serve someone else. It is a rejection of the Lord's rule. And so he reminds them of his leadership and their history. And he says, are you right to do so? Are you right to ask for a king instead of God? He is vindicating his ministry 
and the Lord's providential care of his people. He's saying the Lord has never treated you unjustly. Now, with distance, it's easy for us to say, how foolish were they? God was their king. What were they thinking? But we have to be honest that we may not have responded much well or much better ourselves in the same situation. How many times have you been tempted to think that God has not been fair to you? None of us, though at times we are tempted to claim that God has treated us unfairly, none of us can claim that truly that he has treated us unjustly. We have no accusation that can truly stand against God. Think about it. You may have suffered loss of personal belongings or friends or opportunities. What does God have to gain from taking anything from any of us? God does not need our stuff. Everything is his. It's his stuff that we are stewards of. He's entrusted to us what truly belongs to him. So none of us can make the accusation that God has taken from us. God cannot be bribed. We do not serve a God that could be manipulated by any sacrifice that we could make. He cannot be manipulated by any money that we could give. He cannot be manipulated by any religious service or sacrifice that we could make for others. Of the giving of our time, the use of our resources. No, our giving to him is giving back to what he has entrusted to us. Our giving to him is an act of worship, declaring our trust in him, that he would provide and that all things are for his glory. But what about our suffering that we encounter? Is God just to us in our suffering? Well, the Bible is very helpful. It speaks to our suffering quite often, and it gives us many reasons why we suffer. And the testimony of Scripture is that even the suffering we experience in a fallen world does not invalidate God's righteous integrity as the ruler of the universe. We see here in this example in the history of Israel that God used suffering to chastise his people to draw them back to himself. We know that Scripture teaches that Evil men and women and rulers, bosses, family members who cause great harm and pain and suffering and loss, that they will give account to God one day themselves. And we know from Scripture that the most wise Lord of the universe ordains a purpose in all suffering that he ordains. So our suffering may appear to be unjust, but that is because we don't have the knowledge that God has. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You can't comprehensively know why God has ordained what he has ordained in your life. Occasionally, we get a glimpse into his wise plan for our trouble and affliction and suffering. And if we could see what he sees, and if we would know what he knows, then we would quickly drop any and all accusations we could possibly have against God. Because at the end of the day, no one has been treated in this life according to what they deserve. And that each of us, you and I, we deserve immediate judgment for our sins, but God has treated none of us in that way. See, it's not just Samuel that is vindicated here. It is the ruler of the universe who is vindicated before Israel on this day. Now, if you're a Christian and you find yourself mad at God because of what is happening in your life, this passage calls to you, in the words of Samuel, plead with you concerning the righteous deeds of the Lord. And the word of the Lord through Samuel pleads with you, do not throw off God's rule. He has saved you by the giving of his only son. He is preparing a place for you. He is returning to judge the righteous and the wicked. He is giving you precious promises in his word. And so do not forget the Lord. Do not forsake the Lord. And most importantly, do not ask for a king other than King Jesus. And trust him. Now, if you're not a Christian among us today, and you say, well, the very reason I'm not a Christian is that I believe if there is a God, he has certainly treated me unjustly and unfairly. And the words of Samuel serve to plead with you, consider his righteous deeds towards you. He has not treated you as your sins deserve, but instead, to this moment, he has shown you patience and kindness For some of you, could it be that he has brought hard things into your life to drive you to him? And he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to die for sinners like you and I who have forsaken and willfully forgotten their maker. And the good news of the gospel is that any sinner who recognizes that they have rejected God's rule and instead seeks reconciliation to God through his son Jesus will receive forgiveness of their sins and will be received through Jesus into the family of God. You may say God has treated you unfairly and unjustly and he would point you to the cross of his son and he would say that here is the innocent Son of God dying in the place of sinners so that you might be forgiven. What is the proper response to God's righteous deeds? 
Well, it is to submit to the rule of God. As Samuel has laid out the case, vindicating the Lord's leadership over his people, he calls them back to submit to God's rule. And what would that be? Well, in verses 14 and 15, he lays it out for them. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. He's telling them the best thing for you and the kingdom is that you fear, serve, and obey God above your king. And that as a nation that you would place yourselves and your king under the rule of God's word. You're saying God is not done with you and he will still govern you, but it will be according to his command, according to his word. And the best response to God's righteous deeds is to lay aside our accusations against him and to submit our lives to his word. There in the first 15 verses, we see the vindication of the judge's integrity. And then in verses 16 through 17 now, I want us to look at the validation of the prophet's message. After laid out before them the choice of whom they're going to serve, Samuel is calling the nation back to their God. He's setting before them a decision. What sort of kingdom will they be? He has placed a choice before them. He said, it will go well with you if you submit to God's word. He is clear that it is wrong that they have asked for a king. But God has now placed Saul over them. And God is not done with them. But this may be confusing for some there that day. Because Saul has just led them to a great victory. And could it be that some said, no thanks, we will not submit to God in his word. Saul has just delivered us from our enemies. Now we have the earthly king that we can see, who can lead us into battle. We'll take our chances with him. We're not going to worry about fearing and serving and obeying the Lord. Now we have Saul. So just in case there were those who were ready to reject the word of God through Samuel, God performs a sign to his people through Samuel. It's there in verse 16 and 17. What is the sign? It is the wheat harvest. It's the time of between May and June. It's a time that it would never rain. And God sends a thunderstorm. And it gets everyone's attention. One commentator said it like this. Rain during the wheat harvest would have been like getting six inches of snow in Miami on Memorial Day. This is how striking it was to them. It got everyone's attention, but also it was a sign of judgment because as they would have been harvesting the wheat, a thunderstorm would have caused many problems, potentially even destroying part of the crop that was to be harvested. It's not merely a miracle for a miracle's sake. God is confirming his word through the prophet to them. Here is the validation. It is a clear sign. 
It is similar to the very language that Moses used. As he was leading the people away from Egypt and he comes to the banks of the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies are pursuing him and there's nowhere for them to go. Moses said, stop and see what God is going to do. And then here in verse 16, Samuel tells the people, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. There in Exodus, God split the Red Sea. The Israelites crossed on dry land. And as the armies of the Egyptians and Pharaoh entered the Red Sea, the waters came over them. What was a sign of deliverance for God's people was a sign of judgment for God's enemies. And as this sign is performed in the view of the entire nation, Samuel is making it clear. The choice before you is either to serve the Lord or be his enemy. You must decide. The stage is set. Will the nation serve the Lord or will they be God's enemies? What a great kindness this was by the Lord to show the people their sin and to not leave them there. To speak to them beyond their dullness in such a way that they could not deny Samuel's word to them. What a great kindness it was that he is showing to them here that he will not let them persist and go forward comfortably in their rebellion against him. Here, God validates his word, and in doing so, he clearly exposes his people's sin. Today, we might be tempted to look for reasons to invalidate the word of God. And why is that? Because in it, our sins are exposed. We are tempted to find a reason to discredit what the Bible teaches because it shows us how we come up short. The temptation of Satan in the garden to our first parents came with the question, did God really say? And that is a question that each of us face every day. Did God really say? Here before Israel, his word is validated with a great sign. God is persistent to pursue them. And every time we question the authority of God's word over our life, we need to recognize the motive behind that quite often is the way that the scripture searches and show us our sin. But they also show us such a great salvation. And at this point, we must ask, this isn't the first time that in the history of Israel that they have wandered from God. Why is God so persistent with his people? Well, it's because he is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And here, in the final section, in verses 18 through 25, we see the renewal of that covenant, of God's covenant with his people. Now, 
it'd be appropriate to define what we mean by covenant, and I find it helpful to whenever you're looking for a good definition to look and see what the children's catechism says, because if it's written for kids, I'm sure it could help us all. Question 24 of the children's catechism, what is a covenant? It's in its simplest form, a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. God has established a relationship with his people and he has guaranteed it by his word and he will not go back on his word. The Israelites have sinned against their covenant Lord and here he invites them to renew their covenant relationship to them. Samuel will no longer be their leader, their judge. There's a transition. And when we've seen previous transitions in spiritual leadership and leading the nation of of Israel, there was also covenant renewals. What happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 12 is very similar to what happens in Joshua chapter 24. When Joshua is going to hand over the leadership of the tribes of Israel, he calls on them to renew their covenant with their God. And in doing so, in this covenant renewal ceremony, he reminds them of the covenant demands that the Lord places on them. And then he also reminds them of the blessings and the cursing for keeping or breaking the covenant. And so here we see the covenant demands if they are to renew their relationship to the Lord in verses 20 and 21. In verse 19, the people said that they have made a huge mistake. In verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Here it is. The command and the demand of the covenant is that they are not to turn aside to idols. In our passage, it's identified in the following verse, do not turn aside after empty things. This is one of the ways that the Bible speaks of idols. They're empty things. They're not the true God. There it says, verse 23 or 21, that cannot profit or deliver for they're empty Here Samuel gives us an enduring definition of what is an idol. It's something that can't fulfill its promise to you. It's a false promise. It's empty. It cannot profit or deliver. Tim Chester put it this way. What do you think will make your life good? What was something that would promise profit? What do you think will stop your life from being bad? What will deliver you? He goes on to say, for any answer other than God, Samuel's verdict is that it is useless. It is empty. It will not do you good. It will not prevent bad. It will not save you today or eternally. That is the covenant to man. It's saying you can have the one true God or you can serve empty things false gods that cannot make your life better, that cannot deliver you from harm here or in the life after. But 
in Samuel giving the covenant demands, he does so in an odd way. We would expect him to frame it this way. Turn back to God. But he doesn't. He says, don't turn aside to the empty things. There is a difference. There's other places where God will call his people to turn back. But here he says, do not turn aside. He said, you have sinned, but don't turn away from the Lord. See, what he's getting at is, though they have sinned, and they have sinned greatly against God, this is not what is most true about them. What is most true about them has not changed. They still belong to the Lord. They are still his covenant people, and he has not abandoned them. And so the word of the Lord to his covenant people is that you have sinned, but your sin does not have to define you going forward. Do not turn away from me. It is my relationship to you that defines who you are. And I know that there are probably many here who struggle with this. You say that there is no hope for me. That I've known the truth and I still have turned away from God. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, he says, do not turn away from me. See the mercy that I've extended to you. Don't wallow in your guilt. I have paid for your sins. Don't try to fix what cannot be fixed from your past. But instead, receive fresh grace for your sin. And let's go forward. Your identity is not your sin, but who has bought you and paid for you. And before Samuel can, can get to the blessings and the cursings for keeping or breaking the covenant, he explicitly tells him of God's divine grace. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. He says, this is it. God has not abandoned you. As Matthew Henry put it, had he chosen them for their good merits, we might fear he would cast them off for their bad merits. But choosing them for his name's sake, for his name's sake, he will not cast them off. Though God will frown upon his people, he will not forsake them. And having reminded them that their Lord will not forsake them, Samuel says, I will not forsake you. And in the following verses, he says, in verse 23, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you and instruct you in the good and right way. And here so we get a glimpse of what it will take for any of us to persevere and remain faithful and to not turn away from the Lord. It will take someone praying for us. It will take the instruction from God's word. And here Samuel in his ongoing ministry to the people gives us a picture of Christ's ongoing ministry to his disciples. That though we are tempted to abandon our Lord, he will pray for us and instruct us in the way that we go. But the chapter still closes with curses. 
The last verse, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And there's a juxtaposition here, isn't there? Between God will not forsake them, but if they don't obey, they will be swept away. How do we deal with that? It is clear that they are God's covenant people and God will keep his covenant, but this covenant is conditional. It is conditioned upon them fearing, obeying, and serving the Lord and his word. The scripture goes on to give us the clearest answer in that though they will fail again later to keep the covenant and need to renew it later, God will send a covenant keeper. It is his only son, Jesus. And it is him alone that will perfectly fear, serve, and obey his father. And in doing so, fulfilling the conditions of the covenant between God and his people. And it is for that obedience that Jesus has given a name that is above all other names. And he has given a throne that is above all other thrones. And he has given a people. A people who have forsaken and forgotten their maker, but redeemed by the covenant keeper. And all who belong to him receive what he secured by his obedience. The forgiveness of sins and the resurrection to come. For those in Christ Jesus, the covenant is no longer conditional. He has obeyed in our behalf. So where else could we turn but to him? Let us ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word. God, we come and offer our prayers to you in a time when you may be found. And in our trouble and in our wandering, we are reminded that you and you alone are our hiding place. That there is nothing outside of you that can deliver. There is nothing outside of you that can do us good. And that you alone can preserve us from trouble and even the trouble we face is not outside of your wise doing for our good and your glory. So we acknowledge again this morning our sin to you. We do not cover our iniquity. We confess our transgressions to you, our Lord, that we might renew our relationship with you, that we may move forward in the forgiveness of our sins and that you would instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go for the glory of Christ, we ask all this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.